Welcome to the e-commerce growth show brought to you by Segmentify. So hello everyone, this is Carlos with Evolve. I'm here today uh, joined by Carl Boutet, who's in Canada, and Scott Emans, both uh, retail influencers. And uh, Scott, you're welcome to open the show, uh, the e-commerce the e growth series here. So thank you very much. All right, uh, Carlos. So uh, uh, thank you for that. And uh, uh, hello, everyone. And, and uh, especially welcome, Carl, uh, uh, to our little chat today. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm coming to you from Dallas, Texas, uh, where I have uh, been uh, sort of sheltered in place since January, and it feels like forever. Uh, well, where are you coming from, Carl? I'm coming from Montreal, where I've been sheltered in place since March. So you're, you're once again, Scott, you're a, an innovator and an early adopter because I, I'm, I'm behind the times with you there again. In January, I was actually in China in Shanghai. So that's <laughs> without knowing that I was at the epicenter of something that was going to put us all in this lockdown. But yes, right. now in Montreal from the same basement as I've been since March. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. At least I have, a, I have a window to look out. So I have that going for me. Uh, so I mean, just a quick introduction to listeners that, uh, uh, you know, may uh, uh, not be familiar with what Carl's been up to, right? Uh, he's the founder and chief strategist uh, at Studio RX. Uh, as well as he has multiple other projects that uh, we'll talk about, uh, we'll touch upon, uh, I think today. He's, he's been, you know, doing, you know, this, uh, uh, you know, kind of retail uh, consulting and, 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 and thinking about retail innovation for a long time, for 25 years or so, uh, is, is what it looked like when I, when I looked up your bio. Uh, I saw you describe yourself as the retail prescriptor. <laughs> uh, you know, when I, when I checked out, you know, what was going on over in LinkedIn, uh, you know, which I thought was, you know, uh, really interesting, uh, and unique, uh, and, uh, uh, we're very excited, uh, you know, to, you know, get some, uh, of your views and, and, uh, uh, thoughts, uh, today, Carl. So, um, let's just start, you know, with a general question, uh, you know, from you, from your viewpoint and understanding the world, you know, in, a, in as crazy a place as it's been in our lifetime, you know, in my opinion, uh, what are you seeing in the world of retail right now that uh, is encouraging or concerning uh, uh, for you? Well, let's start with the encouraging part. I uh, hosted a panel yesterday with four uh, sort of the Canadian, with local Canadian uh, brands that uh, were three of the three of the four were in the food service uh, sort of side of retail. Uh, and, and one was in more the hygiene uh, side and, and, you know, to the resilience that this, this pandemic is building up is, is, is really impressive. And the fact that these companies, one was a chocolate company and it was a coffee company. And the third one was a sports bar chain, a, a large sports sport bar chain, which would be the, you know, the hardest hit and yes. seeing their resilience and how they pivoted for in the instance of the, you know, the, the sports bar chain, which was really, you know, your, your beer and wings destination to go watch the fight. Um, you know, they, and they actually own a, 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 a boxing promoting company as well, a large one here. So, you know, the, the, to be hit that hard, to use sort of that, you know, build on that analogy um, and still kind of keep on swinging, you know? So they went, they got into, they went into meal kit and they're, they're doing all this sort of all the, all the moves trying to remain um, relevant. And, and, and so this resilience, you know, that's, this is building up and, and what we, the conclusion, they all, they all had great stories of pivots they all had to make. 
Uh, and they all had surprisingly you know, similar stories around being in mid-March, presenting to their board, their three and five year strategic plans that had all, were sort of just building on what they already had and how they just had to throw that all out and sort of start from scratch. But that for me was, you know, it's encouraging to hear those stories. Um, yeah, the less encouraging part is, is, is obviously the ones that aren't, you know, aren't able, don't have the resources or just aren't, don't, you know, aren't, aren't set up to make those, those changes. So um, that's why we talk about this acceleration so much. And the fact that a lot of the people that were unfortunately not, you know, were headed in the wrong direction just got there quicker than, than they thought. And others, you know, were heading in the right direction also were getting there quicker than they thought. So that's, that's sort of the, the good and the bad and the ugly of the situation right now. Would you, uh, uh, so really, I was really interested to hear the, you know, what was, you know, happening in Canada, uh, you know, uh, part of that story. Uh, you know, we've been, uh, you know, really immersed here in, you know, stories like J.C. Penney's and the Neiman Marcus bankruptcy, obviously, was very interesting to me, considering my background. Uh, and, uh, you know, what's, uh, you know, some interesting new innovation, like I just saw uh, Target and Alta, for instance, uh, announced a new partnership yesterday that I thought was fascinating yeah. uh, 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 to talk about. So, uh, you know, some of, one of the, uh, very important mentors in my life, John Coral, actually ended up going to Canadian Tire, right uh, 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 up there. And so, when you think about a retailer like Canadian Tire, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what is it that they're doing or should be doing uh, uh, to uh, uh, be better? Uh, you know, in a world where you know, kind of physical face-to-face -face retail is problematic. Yeah, it's a, it's a good example because Canadian Tires are an iconic, you know, legacy retail brand. It's very much brick and mortar based. Uh, they've been slow in the digital transformation. They've, they've taken different kick, you know, kicks at it. And as you know well, Scott, I mean, large organizations and especially ones that are complex that have uh, a sort of a web of stakeholders like Canadian Tire would with, with dealers and all that stuff makes it, makes it you know, the resistance to change uh, that much more um, entrenched. And they've, they, but they, they, they committed early, you know, to digital transformation, which uh, is great. I mean, it, you know, the theory of it is fantastic and the technology is there to support it all day long. Uh, the struggle is the cultural one and, 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 you know, sort of building, building the, the internal strengths to, to do that and not, you know, you can hire a bunch of smart people, uh, you know, like yourself, Scott, and then bring them in, but you know, you know what it is steering, how hard steering change can be. So this, this pandemic, I think, really put that in their face. So one of, you know, a very basic example I can share in their specific cases, they really um, pulled forward their whole transition to curbside pickup, something they've been toying around with for, for years and years. I mean, they've had e-com fulfillment for a while. Uh, they've started not so long ago to have visibility of inventory into the store online. So this is sort of the natural progression of it. And it, it, up to this point, they were mainly POCs, uh, proof of concepts that they were playing out. And they had no choice. They had to step up and, and, and you know, do the, do you really offer that curbside pickup? Was it perfect? No, I've used an example in other conversations like these I've had saying, showing the difference between technology and culture, because I think it's a good one. You know, the, the technology was great. How, the, how you operationalize it in the back end and get the people to buy in and get this, you know, the people in the, the dealer level to, to, to pay attention to it and want to fulfill, because my order online takes, you know, eight seconds to complete. I have to wait in the parking lot for 55 minutes for the person to come out with my order and put it in my trunk. Just, you know, that's where maybe things start falling apart. But listen, they're pushing in the right direction. Um, 
and yeah, I mean, we'll see. I mean, they're very much, they're very dependent on the merchandising and being in store and this, the treasure hunt and all that stuff. So we'll see how they evolve. What's interesting is they're also a larger corporation behind them. They're acquiring other things along the way. They're heavy into sporting goods. Uh, they actually, they've been acquiring <clears throat> brands like Helly Hansen, which is an interesting move. So lots going on, but I think my concern, and I've seen this play out for the last, like mentioned 25 years, you know, the big like Canadian tire, which only a couple of years ago thought that they were king of the realm are quickly realizing that they're regional players. And this is something you would have probably witnessed as well at, uh, you know, working in Neiman where you thought you ran the show. And the next thing you know, there's people coming in from all sides that are probably bigger than you even and challenging your dominance. And I think Canadian Tire is stuck in that dynamic as is a ton, ton of other retailers. It's interesting how often curbside pickup is the, is the, the first example everyone brings up for rapid innovation and in, uh, you know in our pandemic times by the time I think at some time we've got to move past that uh, you know we have to we have to go even further right but the uh, oh, yeah. uh, uh, you know and I can say you know my experience uh, you know here you know uh, you know for instance you know directly in Dallas uh, uh, excellent curbside pickup experience at Walmart would be an example, at least their grocery, uh, not so much for their, their main retail, <laughs> I have to say, but okay. their grocery is amazing, you know? Uh, and then, you know, there's another, I won't name them, uh, you know, another very large home improvement, <laughs> well-known home improvement retailer whose curbside pickup is hit or miss. You know, sometimes it's okay and sometimes it's terrible. Uh, well, you know, listen, Scott, you know, you and I know how, you know, it's really easy to strategy, build a strategy for these and even the tech stack to support them to operationalize. I mean, that's what makes our industry so interesting <clears throat> and challenging at the same time is, is there's a lot of moving parts. So I can have a really nice uh, process flow for how this is all supposed to happen. And when you go to that large uh, hardware retailer where this should all you know, sort of just click, 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 but that's the real life gets messy and retail's messy. So how do you, how do you clean through that and how do you figure it out? But we're, we have to head in the right direction. I, I, I heard this summer, uh, Hubert Jolie, the former president, uh, CEO of Best Buy, who's now chairman, you know, saying how they had to roll up curbside in three days. So to your point, I don't think curbside is this amazing innovation. It's something we've been talking about for a long time. It just now really got pushed into their face where there's the only way that they could still serve, you know, their clientele and during lockdowns, especially, and even, post that we'll see but there it's one one small example i think there's a way more interesting stuff happening we could talk about uh, you know some of the more cutting edge things that we're seeing especially in asia where i spend a lot of time as well and and being a double 11 today is is sort of you know fitting to speak about that but we uh, we can get we can get there later but coming back to here in canada yeah i mean there's there's a lot we've also been through a lot of change too don't forget sears here has been closed for years already you know, we, we've already made that pivot. It, it's and, been closed. It's been closed here for years too. They just haven't admitted it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, your friend in, your, your friend in Dallas has, has that the longest going, going on a business sale in history, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the, uh, uh, when I, we think about how, as you just mentioned, right, you know, how quickly, you know, what took three to five years before now is happening in, you know, three to five weeks or in some, maybe even three to five days yeah. uh, uh, in some cases. Uh, you know, I think, you know, I'd love to hear your uh, thoughts on, you know, you know, why it took a pandemic to be the driver, you know, for the innovation that needed to be happening for, for many years, uh, to be honest. And, uh, you know, maybe, 
uh, you know, in light of, you know, the, the you know, sort of uh, organizational uh, friction uh, that you also mentioned and that I wrote a, a very specific op-ed about uh, uh, when I left, it's, that's a very real yeah. thing that, 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 that's a great that, op-ed. that uh, resistance to innovation, if you will, you know, talk yeah. the talk, but they're a lot, you know, a lot worse than walking the walk, if you, if you will. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, it's, uh, listen, I mean, there's, First of all, it's interesting because at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, the groups that you and I have been part of over the years, these innovation groups that were there to sort of set set the stage for for change, were were miraculously being sort of protected at the beginning because they were usually the first to get cut. If you look, if you think back, and our friends at Target, you know, two thousand eight, and these others, like they they just you know those were the first to get slaughtered and this time they hung around a bit longer. But now, I mean, in the fall, unfortunately, I, you know, seeing a lot of um, uh, divestment there, uh, but what you know, what what provoked a lot of the other change is is and is the fact that, I mean, you know, the old Churchill quote that's been going around a lot: "A crisis is a terrible thing to waste," and we came up again yesterday on our panel. It just it's it just changed fundamentally how a lot of people the, the options people had, and so you had no other choice but to sort of keep to, if you wanted to keep up with them. So one of the data points that I've been using since uh, since the last uh, couple of months now is I did a I did a, um, a webinar with the folks from Canada Post, and Canada Post lucked out where they hired a new chief operating officer literally weeks before the pandemic hit, and this chief operating officer came from DHL e-commerce. Uh, his name's Charles Brewer. He was from Singapore, uh, head of DHL's e-commerce division, and Canada Post picked him up. The reason why I say he's lucky because he knows what scale is. And he has an idea of what these are. And the data point that he shared with us was when he got hired, he built out a ramp up for Canada Post parcel uh, capabilities with a nice sort of steady chart graph that was going to go bring, you know, bring Canada Post in over the next 10 years to sort of the fulfillment that they were, they were expecting for, for parcel delivery. Well, they hit the nine-year mark back in like two months into the pandemic of parcel velocity that they had to handle. So this is nine years ahead. So when you talk Crazy. about three to three to five years, three to five weeks, I mean, I've been you know I've been sort of coining this great acceleration uh, concept now since since March, and I'm always looking for data points to sort of back it up because there's a lot of pundits who push back, and I, I don't think they're all, all you know I don't think they're all wrong. I think sometimes we have a tendency to sort of want to overemphasize the short term and forget you know underemphasize the long term, but those are real data points. When 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 the chief operating officer of Canada Post says we basically hit what we were expecting nine years from now. That's that's what, and then you you can replicate that in a bunch of different environments. Food delivery being another big one that's sort of doing that, hitting those kind of numbers as well. Um, you know the the growth of of other e-commerce channels too. So it, I think I think it's real. What provoked it? It's simple. I mean, people had no other choice in a lot of cases. And and where it's going to be really fascinating, why I'm sort of pushing back this book launch I want to do is Christmas. You yeah. know what? What you know? What's Christmas? What is that going to do? Uh, you know, if you think that you, what you just said about you know I hit my nine-year mark in a couple of months, think about what you know socially distance Thanksgiving and Christmas mean, uh, especially Listen, Christmas. Uh, yeah. So a data point fresh from today. I mean, around that in Asia. So China is actually you know pretty much reopened. You know they've been they've been you know the, they 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 nailed this a lot harder at the beginning and now they've you know they've been able to reopen. I saw a video from Singapore as well. I mean it's almost business as usual for them for physical commerce. So you'd say they wouldn't have necessarily the same incentives, but you know the trends that were driven here in the last seven eight months aren't just going to roll back. 
So the, the data point from today was double 11, Alibaba's infamous now singles day, as they used to call it. Um, they just, you know, they had 38 billion in GMV last year. They're already at over 70 and they still got a couple hours to go. And, and, and a lot of this is from pent up because they opened the sale a bit earlier because they wanted to make sure that they could fulfill. So that's something, a strategy right now that all retailers are trying to adopt to sort of broaden out the, the promotional season so that they don't, they don't get hit with such a hard peak. But they did, they were doing a half, a, um, a half a million transactions a second when they, when they opened the floodgates of, of, of double. Amazing. So, I mean, these, again, we're pulling things forward here. Yeah. I mean, I mean, think about that, Scott, think, think about the processing just, I mean, you and I, we've run POS systems. We, you know, we have troubles having, you know, running 12 transactions a second sometimes because we get, we get bottlenecked in our, in our legacy, uh, in our, our legacy platforms. These guys were rolling. I think the, the peak number was 568,000 transactions a second. That's unfathomable. Exactly. I mean, really. I mean, every year we do this. Eh? Every year we go, we look at the numbers, you know, a uh, billion dollars in the first minute. We were blown away. And the year after that was like 10 billion in the first 30 minutes. We're like, oh, it's impossible. I mean, every year just, and, and again, think that the majority of their sales are still in China, although they did say US, uh, their number one market now outside of China, and it's ramped up very quickly. They have, I think, over a dozen brands that did over a billion uh, in, in, um, in sales and is so far with them as well in that day. So there's like the Nikes, the L'Oreal's, the, I mean, it is, it is mind boggling and it just keeps on, on scaling higher in an environment that again, 80% of physical retail is still open. And there's still people going into the stores. The video I got from Singapore, I'll be sharing it on my network uh, shortly that a friend sent me. I mean, it, you know, it looks like kind of business. You see people going around walking into our stores, but there's still 550,000 transactions are happening a second there today at the same time. So the parallels are wild. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of, you know, sort of retail opening up in Asia, you know, I, re I was reading a little blurb about you sort of peeking out uh, uh, out of your hibernation uh, as some retail opened up in Canada. And did I read correctly that it was John Candy Day? Uh, <laughs> it's possible. You didn't get that from me, but listen, you, yeah. we're Canadians. We'll, we'll, we'll grapple with whatever sort of Best holiday ever. Best yeah. holiday ever, you yeah. know, is, is what I, was my comment there. <laughs> it wasn't for me, Scott, but I would, I, I'm with you 100%. Junk Candy Day should be a, a much larger celebration. Absolutely. Today, you know, today is, is Remembrance Day as well. So we got a lot of things to say, you know, to, to, to look back on and, and remembering John Candy being, being one one for sure. Yeah, Veterans Day here in the U.S., so it's a very similar uh, uh, holiday uh, today. Um so, you know, one of the things I heard you say, uh, you know, as I listened to some of the other interviews you've given, uh, uh, you know, especially this was, you know, back right at the start of the pandemic. Uh, uh, and and uh, to paraphrase, uh, you were talking about how uh, uh, if we're not back to normal soon, right, that the, uh, you know, some of these psychological shifts in the customer, you know, from the customer's point of view, yeah. were going to become permanent. Right. right, that they weren't going to revert back. And, uh, you know, it, back then, you know, the, you know, I think the projection was, you know, if we're not normal by June, right, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which seems, you know, uh, uh, very optimistic now, you know, looking at where we are today. So, uh, so would you address that? 
Well, I think I, I sort of did a bit in, in talking about this experience of what what's Double Eleven's doing in China. Again, they are kind of back to normal. If anybody's back to normal, whatever the hell that is, now it's them. And there's still, you know, there's still these, these deep trends that have changed where people have digitized uh, sort of the commodity purchasing and the promotional purchasing. And I, 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 it's hard to believe we're going to go back to a world where we're going to be doing all that back in just in, you know, as much in physical as you will. So the curve really, what the, the overall curve, what it looks like so far, and, and this all, this is all going to get stretched out is we went from, I'm just using very broad numbers, 15% online. And in May, we jumped to 30% online. Like in, in literally that was the three to five years in three to five week analogy. That's the other data point around, around that acceleration. And over the summer, while well, we came back down, I mean, I think I saw numbers as low as maybe 18%, but let's, Let's round it out to 20. Now it's starting to build back up again as we, we ramp up to the Christmas season where a lot of studies are showing that 50% of transactions for the holiday time will be done online. Not 50% of all consumption we do, but specific to the, to the holidays will be done online. So how, again, how do we sort of go back to that? And another part of my thesis around the acceleration and what's provoking it and maybe going back to questions to what you're asking about what's, you know, it's not just that, so first is a consumer behavior that's changing. They're, 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 they're more patient around adopting these new or forced to adopt these new ways of, 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 of dealing. My 75 year old mother-in-law is ordering groceries online now. I mean, that's, you know. Mine, mine, mine as well. <laughs> right, I think that's indicative. But the other one, and I do this in one of my, you know, I do this now in my keynotes, some of my keynotes is um, I, I list the five largest uh, companies uh, on the stock exchange by market cap. And then I go through what they all have to gain by pushing this and this acceleration even harder. So, and, and who has more resources than those five? And in, the, in there, there's Microsoft, there's Facebook. I mean, all these, so it's not just Amazon because uh, that's clearly the winner. So, you know, so add to this sort of perfect storm, these tech behemoths, these, you know, untethered uh, tech behemoths and then obviously in Asia, you have, the, you have the ones there too. And even here in Canada, people, people are surprised to learn, you know what, Scott, the largest market cap company in Canada is right now? The largest, it's been, it was Royal Bank for the last like, I don't know, hundred years, we'll say I'm exaggerating, but what, you know what, the, you know what is 30% higher than Royal Bank today? Shopify. Wow. Well, that, it makes sense, actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, it does make sense, but I wouldn't... Yeah, trains around 120 billion. Yeah, no, exactly, because yeah. they were they were at half that six months ago. So I mean, by all means, let's not take market cap as a proxy for you know the an ultimate proxy for all things. It's it's a it's sort of a market exuberance and and, and unreal unreal unrealistic at a lot of levels. But it is what it is. It's a market that's still is supposed to reflect a larger trend. So so when you get the Shopify's, the Alibabas, and you get you know your 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 Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, uh, um, and and uh, and you know these these all these these Google and all these guys saying, okay, you know what? Guess who's going to win from this acceleration? They raised all their hands and like, okay, double down on whatever. So Google pulls off the cost of listing their shopping. Facebook goes acquires Geo in India, which is another absolutely stunning market right now. Uh, you know the the Microsoft is trying to hang on, grab any deal it can get. They were trying to get on the TikTok deal. They're, they're, they're pushing Azure to anybody who wants to live. So they're like, okay, we got hundreds of millions of dollars that we need to plow into this now because we need to capture that market share. So what are they doing? They're subsidizing these new behaviors that were already on their way. So put this together, Scott, and you're back to your long-winded response to your original question. How do we go back to before? 
I think it's really hard to see a scenario where it goes exactly back, but is it going to be, are we going to be at what we were in May or maybe might be again in November, December? Things that it's going to be a hybrid. It's going to sell, it's going to sort of settle down. And, and the parallel I make, I think it reflects the retail equation a lot is the commercial, uh, the office tower equation. So office towers are pretty much empty. You know, are, you know they were 100% capacity pre-pandemic, 110% in some markets. Feels like there's a danger of the collapse of that entire right. Business. Well, and it's yeah. going to so it's going to need to reshuffle. But but is it going to stay? Is it going to stay at ten percent? No, it's going to go back. I mean, it's going to go back, but it's not going to go back to hundred. Well, maybe we'll get we'll get to together. talk about the office space great apocalypse, and we can stop talking about the retail great apocalypse for uh, a while. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, it's uh, it's. I mean, they you know talk about an industry that's going to be going through such a huge shift because. So again, perfect storm for them. So their top two sort of income streams are, are office and retail, right? So, uh, and hospitality and, and you know, whatever. You know, I, I have a very broad definition of retail, I'm sure like you do, but so they're having to sort of reinvent and you can't turn every office tower into a condo complex. So what are you, you know, what are they, what are they gonna do? But that said, there are, these office towers are gonna refill slowly once we get to a vaccine or a way of dealing with this pandemic a little more efficiently. You know, office towers will go back to maybe two thirds, you know, maybe that's still a massive hole. And I think that's sort of the same sort of dynamic we'll see in retail is that hole, that void gets filled by something else. And in retail, it's basically digital commerce, which is blurring into physical anyway. So that, that difference, that's what I'm looking forward to. Once we get to that magical 50-50 and we just stop talking about the difference altogether and just focus on on delivering the experience, but um, but in the meantime, you know we do have to pay attention to those numbers, and and it's fun. It's interesting to look around and see the other industries that are going to sort of have the same realities of how they fill their voids. So let me uh, uh, give you an opportunity uh, to talk about something that you do talk about often, and that's the great acceleration. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, you describe, you know, these sort of periods in history is almost kind of like, uh, you know, the industrial revolutions <laughs> are described yeah. in different periods. Uh, uh, when you're talking about, you know, uh, 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 retail, you know, uh, prior to the Great Depression versus between now and 2008 versus uh, our 2008 and the Great Depression, as opposed to what's happening right now. Um, and, you uh, uh, you know, I'd love to, you know, hear more, you know, on on this great acceleration and, and how how are brands and retailers going to keep up uh, with even more accelerated uh, change, you know, when, you know, they were barely hanging on, you know, by the tips of their fingers uh, at the old accelerated rate of change. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's a real concern. So maybe just first part, I mean, in terms of uh, my analogy and why the great acceleration was because I was thinking of it not so much in the change that was created during the depression or the um, or the, the, the recession. It was just sort of the branding of it and how we looked back on those. It was called the great depression. It was called the great recession. And I was hoping that at least this, what we're, we're still in the midst of right now, we'll look back and think of it as the great acceleration, which is sort of the nice way to spin it, quite honestly, because there's obviously some, some much more uh, difficult ways to look at it. So it's just my way of sort of you know, thinking how, wondering how we're going to look back on this period and not so much a parallel between the changes that happened during those, these three massive, massive events. Um, but to, to, to the question of, you know, how are retailers going to react to it? I'm, my biggest concern is really around, again, I'm going to come back to people. I mean, how do they, I mean, when Verge at least talking about three days to roll out curbside pickup across the Best Buy group in the Northeast and, you know, 
I mean, that puts a real strain on your people. Can, you know, how often can they re repeat that? Does that, is that become what the executive team now thinks is the norm and whatever the other change initiative they're going to want to do to try to keep up is going to happen, you know, is going to be a breakneck speed and breakneck, the, the word, the word implies what can happen, um, the term implies. So, uh, so I think, but the, the reality is, I think what's, what's the good side and what the reorganizations have noticed, and we've been talking about this for a while, that's why it's an acceleration. It's the, everything we're seeing is nothing we didn't expect to come. It's just happening a lot more quickly is the fact that the organizations are becoming a lot more lean they're becoming a lot more focused. They're, you know, they're, uh, they're getting sort of out of their bureaucratic, uh, the good ones, at least, you know, or the ones I think they're going to be okay are trying to get out of their bureaucratic red tape as quickly as possible. Cause they know that change that pace, uh, can't be held if they don't, if they have all these old processes in place that were holding them back in the first place. So, so that's really what it is. And it's a, and it's a mentality. I, I, uh, I teach a, um, I teach a marketing course here at McGill for executives, uh, the executive Institute. And one of my favorite case studies that I bring up is Lululemon and how this past summer they acquired mirror. And this was obviously in the works pre pandemic. So this wasn't necessarily, this wasn't necessarily something that they started looking at back in March. They probably, I thought that was a, a really interesting acquisition by the way. Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So same here at so many levels, right, Scott? I mean, it's, it's, you know, you can look at it sort of at the first level and say, oh, it's a cool tech, tech, you know, technology hire and it gives them access to consumer data and this sort of stuff. But what does it do even culturally for a company that was, has been very low tech up and it's all been about, you know, yoga studios and, 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 and offering free classes at night. I mean, it's not having, they haven't been really a technology company. So, uh, so that I think is an example of an acceleration where they probably said, okay, we've been looking at this. We've got to do it. It's not perfect. It's not us yet, but if we don't, you know, if we don't do it now, and I think it's going to play out brilliantly for them, quite honestly, but it's one of my favorite, I think, sort of examples of, of, of how uh, right now executive teams are changing uh, Calvin McDonald, who's, who's leading the team there, knows a lot about this, comes from Sephora and, uh, and our good old, our Loblaws uh, here before that, really good operator, really good strategist. And, and it's, I think it's more than an aqua hire. I think it's more than a technology play. It's, I think it's a really fascinating intersection that, that speaks to a lot of the trends we're accelerating right now. Yeah, nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? The, uh, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, I think about, you know, in my own experience, you know, say 2008, the Great Recession and prior, you know, the typical approach to adversity was, you know, burn the furniture to keep the lights on, right. uh, you know, and, and, and was not necessarily, hey, we need to innovate and be better. Uh, <laughs> but we do. Yeah. What, what yeah. we need to do is cost cut our way to success, exactly. you know, is what it felt like. And, and you know, with, you know, the, the, this, this period we're in now, it seems like uh, the, you know, innovate and be better than your competitors approach to it has, you know, finally, you know, won, right? It's, it's finally come to the forefront. Yeah, and be open to change, right? And, 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 and you know, the thing, even these, these four leaders I had yesterday, I mean, when they, you know, the day after, basically, they, they went into lockdown, they did all the virtual hands they had at their team was like, take your job descriptions and throw them in the garbage, because I'm telling you for the next foreseeable future, you know, everybody's got to do what has to be done. And, and we're all going to sort of, we're going to go and try new things. We're going to go in new directions. And, and he, you know, they were talking about the partnerships that they were exploring, you know, the, again, the idea of us, I think about that, your sports bar that where you go for your beer and wings now offering a meal kit uh, service. I mean, these are things where you can imagine if the faces are on the table when the first person comes up with that idea a year ago, they would have got laughed out of the room. 
you know, and now it's like, you know, okay, let's, let's think this through. What does this mean? What does it imply? What are the resources it's going to take? How does this fit our brand? Is it, you know, can we, and, 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 you know, it's, it's, and, and back to your previous question, you know, what is the future of that? Once what's the new normal, are they going to pull that all out? If this, if this meal kit that they now do office, they can do office, uh, virtual office parties with, they do all these cool things. Is that all going to get this, you know, pulled off once, you know, they can reopen the restaurants hundred percent capacity. It'd be crazy too, because they've already built this thing up and, one of the the, the 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 analogies that we were pulling around often is a lot of people were sitting on on, on one peg uh, on, on one leg chairs. I mean, they were basically they had the one leg was a solid leg, and they it could keep them it could keep them. But they realized now that they you know they they needed more legs to stabilize the chair. So they a lot of them were you know so one of them was starting to sell into major grocery, which had never never done before. Explored that option. Another one uh, went B to C. It was a pure B to B model. You know, pivoted to 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 a B to C model. Um, it's building, I started off talking about resilience. So I think that's, that's really what these examples speak of is you need to have, but you need the team, you need the people, you need the, the spirit to set it, kind of broaden your horizons and say, okay, as in the mirror case, a little lemon, okay, this isn't so crazy after all this might, this might make sense. And that's, you know, sort of the, the, the peak of what that could the, the possibilities could be, but a sports bar chain selling, you know, meal kits for chicken wings and, 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 and fried, uh, fried whatever I mean is, is is now part of the norm too I, I I'd like to ask you one question then Carl uh, if I may jump, jump in Scott it's it's more like about the future of jobs as well as how you see if retailers are becoming more lean as you said you know like and um, I think there's a, a demand for people you know with higher technological skills and well, yeah. um, and and I, I'm curious to, to to hear your your take on that Absolutely. Well, sort of two things happening there, Carlos. So on one side, definitely, um, you know, the argument, if you look at those, those top, you know, my highest market cap companies, the reason they're so successful is they, they've been able to track that talent that basically allows them to build better algorithms than anybody else. And it makes it really hard for the rest of the industry to kind of even mm. near to that talent. So if you're a Neiman Marcus or you're a, yeah, you're a, 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 you know, forget about a JCPenney, but let's think about even a Nordstrom or a, 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 you know, a decent retailer and you're going after a data scientist right now and Amazon's interested in that same data scientist, guess who's going to get, you know, guess where right. you're yeah. going to end up. So, and it's something that we, I, so I mentioned earlier, I mentioned I do work with McGill University here. We have a, we have a, a, um, a, a school, a retail, a retail management school. It's something we often bring up to the employers saying, listen, our, our top data science students that are coming out of McGill, mm -hmm. we're trying to entice them and show them that they didn't even know that retail was an option for them, really. I mean, they just thought that they were all going to end up working at Google. And, and so we're like, no, retailers have, you know, really deep needs for, for very talented data scientists. And we have a group here in Montreal called Aldo Group, which is a, a shoe retailer, 3,600 stores around Canada. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're struggling to hang on to those data scientists because how, you know, how can a shoe retailer offer pretty much vice president level right. salary packages yeah, to, yeah. to, 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 you know, a, a master's student in data science, which is almost what it's, what it's got to. But the second part, so that's that's already a tough one, and and there could be some arguments made around, you know, using third-party services and working with technology companies to support that, and so there's, there are there are workarounds. The other part, but I think is more, even more interesting, is that is is the um, the associate the associate level, and 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 how can you empower them with this technology? So I think clienteling tools are going to become really really powerful. So as we downsize, you're saying you know we shut we sort of reduce. 
mm-hmm. our, our floor, our, our floor space and our headcount in the floor space, you need to sort of increase the talent uh, level of those people without them being uh, MIT data scientists. Uh, they can, you know, but they, they need to sort of have these tools and that, and I know, uh, you know, all the different uh, department store electric like Neiman's and, and Sachs and all that have been working with, with uh, such tools so that these associates can become very digitally uh, empowered to be able to maintain a, a better relationship with their client, with their customers. So it's happening sort of on both of those fronts and they're converging because one sort of leads to the other anyways, you did that, those client telling tools, you know, obviously give you a lot of data that you can, you can do more things with by, but you need sort of that, that connective tissue. And, and I speak a lot, I've been speaking for a while about, uh, you know, how we've been, we're blurring this digital physical to the 50, 50, where it doesn't matter anymore. That's a perfect example of that. Cause that associate is another person that's throwing their job description out the window right now. Let's, let's talk, let's talk about the 50, 50, you know, which I assume, you know, we're talking 50% physical, 50% digital, uh, sort of a, a split between how I interact uh, uh, with my customers, you know, and, and I, uh, uh, you know, my time, you know, at Neiman Marcus, I, I think when I left, we were about 35% digital and uh, we were well ahead of uh, what our competitors uh, were doing, uh, having been a very early adopter of e-commerce number one yeah. and have, and, and actually, despite some of the, uh, maybe not good technology decisions that got made, you know, here and there over the years. One of the things I definitely embraced was data science uh, and, uh, and understood the importance uh, of that mechanism to understand the customer. There was no doubt about it. In fact, my, my first job at Neiman's when I came there was I was brought on for a two week engagement to help them with business intelligence, which is kind of what we used to call data science. Hopefully we revert back to that. Cause I think sometimes we've penned a little too hard on the data science and sort of forgot about the business intelligence piece of it, but yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I guess my question, yeah, that was a long winded, you know, description to get to the question, which is, you know, with, you know, how important that digital commerce piece is becoming, um, uh, you know, how can, uh, you know, the, the retailer continue to deliver the personalization, the authenticity, the empathy, uh, uh, you know, the, the, you know, what, you know, we called at Neiman's the white glove service, uh, uh, you know, when I'm dealing with digital customers, because I think a lot of those experiences fall short. Yeah, and, and, and they, were, they were sort of hard to acquire before. Um, so one of my major endeavors here since the beginning of the pandemic is I'm working with a, a provincial uh, innovation center um, where we're trying to, we realize quickly, especially the small, you know, the smaller size retailers were undergunned when it came to the, the digital tools. And the reason they were, most of them is they thought they weren't acquirable. They thought that only Apple and Neiman's and, and these you know, large, sophisticated retailers could, um, could pull together the technology stack that you would need to offer VIP white glove service, you know, book an appointment, uh, you, know, uh, deli- you know, have the delivery follow later on, uh, it has different engagement tools, all the, all the sort of the nice suite of which were when you're, you know, with Neiman or you know, Apple, these are all sort of custom made tools that cost millions and millions of dollars that are now basically, you know, software as a service tools yeah. yeah, on the cloud that you can get for $30 a month in some cases. So that was sort of the mission we gave ourselves at the center saying, okay, how quickly can we get this out to the small retailers to show them that these tools are no longer, you don't have to be a multi, you know, 
multi-billion dollar organization or hundreds of millions to to afford these if you you know if you can afford a 50 dollar a month subscription and you just maybe not even that maybe it's ten, maybe it's ten dollars a month now. absolutely you know, I, yeah I, I think you know we built an amazing mobile crm for our associates it's amazing uh, you know what it can do yeah. uh and uh you know uh, lots of time and money and effort were spent doing it and we were first to market with it but you know what you can buy those same capabilities you know like i said for ten dollars a month now uh, you know, as a mobile subscription. And guess what? You don't have to spend all the time and effort maintaining it. And you can, you know, focus on being a better retailer as opposed exactly. to being a better technologist. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and, and it, but it's still a struggle. I mean, even if sometimes it's not just the cost, it's not the $10 a month, it's the mindset, right? And they're like, listen, I, I struggle enough keeping up with my day-to-day -day business and, and, you know, making sure the lights are turned on and my, and my, my shelves are stocked. They don't have time to start fooling around with these digital toys. And they're like, well, you know, your customers fooling around with those digital toys and, and you're going to have to find a way to maybe, yes, you still need to keep the lights on and the shelves stocked, but you're going to have to sort of re reallocate how you resource time uh, and people to, to sort of support these tools. And, and, and thankfully there's, you know, there's tools that are even making that part of it easier that's automating a lot. So for instance, you know, we have these chatbots now because we realize that 80% of the conversations in these, these new digital channels were repetitive and the same thing. What time, what time's the store open? What time do you close tonight? Do you have this in stock? Yeah. You don't necessarily need a human answering those. And again, not, they're not. Sometimes, sometimes you do, there should at least be a, yeah, okay, look, I'm in that business now, actually. Yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah. I would love I, you know, the idea of this podcast is not to be a commercial for me, but I'd love to have a long discussion with you about that because that's what I, you know, pretty much am doing for a living lately uh, is, is that, you know, uh, AI assisted, bot assisted, you know, uh, uh, but with humans at the ready, you know, kind of communication, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's all about empowering, right? I mean, it's all... Uh... I mean, you probably um, you probably met Kyle Nell, who was running. Lewis. Oh yeah, I did. I was. I mean, look, I was a fanboy. Uh, you know, right? Yeah. Uh, so, especially of the budget he got compared to mine, it was amazing. So yeah, yeah. you you weren't you weren't printing three D tools in the in the space station, uh, yeah. but he, you know, what I liked a lot was he was talking about the early robots they had and how they were. You know, people say, oh, you know, the associates are going to hate the robots because they're going to steal their jobs. And he's like, no, they're actually taking away the boring stuff that the associate hates doing, showing the person where this screw is or where that hammer is and helping them build a deck instead, which is what their associate or at least the right associate should really want to do. And that's the way I see technology. I think technology needs to be, you know, taking away the mundane and the repetitive because that's what technology is good at. And, and allow the, the, you know, the human empathy and the, the shine and, and the, the knowledge and, you know, building a deck is a lot more complicated. You could train AI to show how to build a deck eventually, but there's so many different configurations and there's so many there's different variables and conditions. You sort of need the human to really step in quickly in that equation beyond, you know, choosing what screw size and what two by fours you need. But it's, so that's, that's really where I think this assisted world is going. And that's why that blurring becomes more and more fascinating as well. Yeah. And yet, this very week, you know, we see, you know, the headline, uh, Walmart fires Bossa Nova because the humans can count the shelf stuff better, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, and I would imagine it's probably not even better. I would, I would imagine it's probably cheaper. You know, well, if you read you know, between the lines. I think there was a backstory yeah, to that. I remember one of the first, the first reports was that there was, it was these robots were driving the associates crazy because they kept on beeping and, and, and sirens kept on going off because they kept on finding shortages and things like that. And it was driving the people crazy. So at some management level, they said, it's either, you know, we're going to come to a head here where people are either going to start, you know, tearing these things apart, or we're going to have to sort of pull the plug and find a better way to do it. But it's iterative. I mean, hats off to Walmart. Quite honestly. We didn't yeah. talk about Walmart. Oh, no, absolutely. I, look, uh, you know, I think that, you know, as much as this, as 
as you've you've mentioned many times, you know how uh, uh, willing Amazon is to go invest in experimentation, right? And to invest, you know that you know for you know they have fifty experiments going on at any given time, and only one of them is going to actually end up being the thing. But it's a really big thing, you know when uh, you know when they find it. Right. And I think Walmart, Walmart is, is replicating, you know, very, you know, closely that model as well. Yeah. It feels like it anyway. And that's and that you just put a put your finger on something we haven't talked about, but that's really probably the biggest resistance to change and why, you know, the companies are going to fail is Amazon, you know, when one of those 50 that, you know, would hit it out of the park, they wouldn't fire the 49 other project leads as traditionally would happen in, you know, in regular, in our regular business environment where they say, okay, that, that person gets promoted to vice president and the other 49 others got to go find a job yeah. that we know that destroys innovation. So Walmart's come around to that. Other organizations are embracing that saying, listen, we know that 80%, 90% of what we're going to do is going to fail. And we're fine with that. Cause that's the only way we're going to get the 10 or 20% that's actually going to make a difference. And that sort of relates back to my cultural thing earlier, but it just, you, you, you nailed it there, Scott, because that really is the, the difference right now and why. The, and now the larger companies have obviously embraced this a long time ago. And now the others need to catch up and, and do the same. All right. Well, the time has really flown by. And I want to make sure we get to this last little section. Uh, you know, I was out just sort of, you know, Googling around, you know, saying, you know, what interesting things could, you know, uh, uh, have you been up to that we could talk about uh, today? Just wanted to, you know, get up to, uh, up to current. And I came across this podcast that was entitled, Should I Build an Innovation Lab? Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, obviously with my background, I was drawn to that like a moth to a candle. Uh, 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 and it was very interesting, you know. I, you know, I, uh, I listened to the whole. I don't know, it was pretty long, forty-five minute thing, because it was a very interesting topic uh, uh, from my uh, perspective. So, you know, the, the kind of the golden age of you know retailers all building their own innovation labs and you know running around to you know uh, uh, you know tooting their horns about you know all the amazing things that they're doing, uh, you know, at the Target re- you know, Innovation Lab or the Nordstrom Innovation Lab or even the Neiman Marcus. Uh, innovation lab. Those have all pretty much, you know, more or less gone away uh, uh, for the most part. So, would, uh, you know, so what's the, what's, wh- how do we do it today? What's the right way to do that, to, to make sure that you have a solid uh, and ongoing innovation program uh, at your brand? Oh, yeah. That, that's a long, long question to end off with. And it will, it's, we'll plug in Ives po- podcast there. Maybe part of this is, is yeah. yeah school of innovation. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, it's interesting because Eve, since I did that, I think we did that late in the summer and I'm doing some other stuff with Yann Eve, uh, who was, by the way, led Future Group's Innovation Lab. You remember the Explorium we were all talking about three, four years ago? Yeah. That was him. That was his project. So that's how he, he and I connected at first as well. Um, and interestingly enough, I'm actually in the midst of, of re- sort of launching two other ones right now. One that was I've been advising for McGill for a couple of years now, and it's finally just because of this pandemic got drawn up. We have a fascinating, very academic one. So there's no, there's you know how this is, Scott. I mean, there's no single answer. You know what is the best way? What is the future of? There's there's several futures and several several. It's not cookie you know, cutter. It's not. It's cookie not cookie cutter. cutter at all. So so in one end, I have a very academic, long horizon. A uh, very deep uh, sort of research facility, really. That, that I think you almost need to be hosted on univer- in a university, quite honestly, because you have accent, access to that sort of you know, those resources of people and, and, and money and all that, because it's 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 substantial, and they're they're among the rare people that don't care don't necessarily care so much about the next quarter. So that's so yeah. that's a great place for that kind of research. 
to happen and it's going to be fascinating. And I mean, I, I mean, the, the day they announced they were doing it, I was in the office of the, uh, the associate dean saying, how can I help? Because I've, I've been, you know, close to the labs for a long time as well. And then sort of with the center I was mentioning earlier, we're doing one as an extension of part of a sort of a, a help sh a shop local uh, project that we're trying to sort of support back to those local retailers. And we've gone around and, and promoted these technologies and we we'll say, okay, we need to find a place to house the technologies. Now, you know, have the, 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 the local uh, business owners come and, and experiment with them. And at the same time, we'll promote uh, local goods. So it'll, it'll play sort of a, a, a double effect. And it, listen, we'll see, it's an experiment. So we, we, we you know, we've, we've got some, you know, much smaller resources than what the university has with a much less, you know, uh, academic or, or deep knowledge. It's, it's, it's very, you know, it's very much supporting the technology companies, quite honestly. We said, we said, what can we do to help you? Because we need you to connect with the, with, the, with the retail community a bit more. So, so we create a space like that, which is more the traditional sort of, and it's short term, that's going to be three months, three to four months, and then we're gone. So there's, there's a lot of different manifestations. And I think it really depends on the resources at hand and the outcomes you're looking for. But uh, one thing for sure is I, I'm a big fan of iteration. So I think that's, that's going to be sort of key in most of the environments. But something like McGill is doing is going to be less iterative because the research is, 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 is deep. So you can't keep shifting variables as much as you would in, in something that didn't, doesn't require the same academic depth. Cross-pollination versus practical experimentation. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of intersections too. I think, you know, that's what I like to create. So I think my best ideas that, uh, you know, when I, you know, doing you know, innovation for Neiman Marcus were cross-pollinated from things that weren't retail, to be quite Absolutely. honest. Oh yeah. But that was, that was a green field. Um, so, all right. Well, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, we are, uh, you know, at the end of our time together, uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. I think there's a lot left to talk about and, you know, maybe, uh, down the road, we can get together again and, uh, you know, continue the conversation. I'd love the opportunity uh, uh, to do that. Um, so, uh, Carlos, I'll turn it over to you to take us out. Sure. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, Carl, if, uh, you know, folks out there, they want to know more about you and uh, there's the book as well, you know, uh, how can how can people find you? I think LinkedIn is still probably the primary way to where I'm most active as well. Twitter, but uh, Carl, Carl with a C, B-O-U-T-E-T. I'm pretty sure it'll be in your show notes anyways. So yeah, please reach out. Absolutely. So thanks very much. It was fantastic. 